Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you on this beautiful Lord's Day. Please have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's read a couple of verses before we begin. Get the scripture out in front of us. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm just going to read verse 15 and 16 as we think about how the Ephesus church started and how well they were doing. <clears throat> Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He heard of their faith in God, in the Lord Jesus, and the love that they had toward all the saints. I'm really happy to be here with you today, and I can't thank you enough for inviting me. I would list off the elders' names, but there's like 17 of them now, so, which I am just tickled about, by the way. You are so, so blessed here at Monta Vista to have the elders that you do and the foresight that you're having about the future. I just, it, it brings me um, serious joy to my heart to know that this congregation is moving forward and growing in that way. There are so many congregations, beloved. There are so many congregations that are dying on the vine. Conservative groups that don't have elders or very, very soon probably to have an eldership dissolved. So you are just so blessed. So count, count that a blessing and pray for them on a regular basis. Um, being here at Monta Vista, it's starting to make me feel old. Brian and I, Brian Sheely and I, we taught the third grade through fifth grade class for like five years straight. Felt like 20. But like for five years straight, we were teaching the third through fifth graders, and, and it was really, really good for us. We went through the Bible uh, with that age group. And now to see these kids are, are young men and women. So I got a text not too long ago from Micah Amalong asking me if I could be like uh, a reference for a job application. I'm like, what, am I 50? <laughs> like I used to teach this guy, now he's like 6'9". I, I mean, I can't believe how tall he is. I get a text the other day from Drew about his scripture reading and it sounds like an adult. And I'm like, this is, this is crazy. You did a great job, by the way, with the scripture reading. Um, and I know you think the same way about my kids, uh, but life is passing us by, and it's good to be uh, together and thinking about spiritual things. As we think about the beginning of the church in Ephesus, you can see that they had a strong start. So I want to ask this question. A church with a strong beginning, known for its faith and love, what does it look like after 20 years or so? We'll look at the 20 years part in just a moment. But I, I can't think of a church that had as strong of a start as Ephesus because Paul invested a lot of time in this congregation. As we read in our scripture reading from Drew in Acts 20, as he met with the elders there in Acts 20 and said goodbye to them, he said that he had spent three straight years in Ephesus. I don't know of a congregation where Paul spent that amount of time. Now, he spent a lot of time in Antioch, but three straight years. Um, to me, I, I believe that's the most amount of time that he spent of any congregation. And they grew to a point where they had shepherds. That Acts 20 conversation was with shepherds. 
And you saw in verses 15 and 16 that they're known. They're known in the region for having faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. So what do they look like after 20 years? And as you can see, the question that I have at the bottom of the screen, wouldn't it be nice for Monta Vista to get a report card after 20, 30, 40, 50 years, which you've been around that long, from the Lord Jesus Christ that says, hey, here's a letter from Jesus. Here's how you're doing after a few decades. Well, we have that. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Ephesians. Okay, I, I, I'm glad there was a few chuckles out there. You know the books of your Bible. Let's go to a fee, uh, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. This is what I'm calling 2 Ephesians. Normally, when a second letter is written to a congregation, we call that 2 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians. Sometimes it's written to a person, 2 Timothy, and sometimes it's named after the writer, 2 Peter or 2 John. But in this particular book, we have seven letters given to the churches um, here in Asia. One of them is Ephesus, and it's a report card, if you will. Well, if you have answered this question at the bottom of the screen, wouldn't it be nice to have a report of ourselves? I think we do. And I think the report card is these seven letters to the churches in Revelation. These are your report cards. It is the report card of every congregation of the Lord, every church of Christ in America, every church of Christ across the world. Your report card is right here. Now, that may sound like an exaggeration, but it's not. And I believe that this is the significance of seven. So before we read the letter, I just want to ask you, have you ever thought to yourself at a Bible class, or maybe, maybe Sean has preached on this, but why seven letters? Why just seven letters to the churches here in Revelation? If you've read Christian commentators and, and, and that type of thing, you know that there's about 500 to 1,000 townships in this area at this particular time, late first century. 500 to 1,000 townships. So there are probably hundreds of local congregations here in Asia, and we know about some others that Paul wrote to earlier in the New Testament that are not included in these seven letters to the churches of Christ. So why just seven? Well, if you've ever studied Hebrew numerology, you know that the term seven, the number seven, represents fullness, completeness. And you see this throughout the book of Revelation. You also have seven seals, you have seven trumpets, and you have seven bowls. Well, why seven seals? Why not eight? Why not five? Same thing about the trumpets. Same thing about the bowls. It, it's, it's representing fullness. It's representing the completeness of God's judgment. That God's judgment in the book of Revelation is complete. This is full. It's going to happen. And I'm saying the same thing about the seven letters to the churches. That it represents the church of Christ throughout the entirety of the world here in these seven letters. And because there's nothing new under the sun, I'm saying the same thing about us. That if these seven letters represent the fullness, the completion of God's church at that time, and there's nothing new, 
that we can look into these seven letters and find ourselves. One last thing before we move on. See this at the bo bottom of the screen? Somewhere in these seven letters is us as disciples, too. Because what's the church made up of? It's just disciples. It's saved people. So if this is true, that the seven letters represent the completion, the fullness of God's church at this time, and there's nothing new under the sun, and churches are just made up of disciples, somewhere in these seven letters, make this this personal to you, somewhere in these seven letters is you as a disciple of Jesus Christ, somewhere in these seven letters is Alan Greeley as a disciple. Are you in Ephesus? Let's find out. Here's how I would describe this church. It sounds a little harsh. It's not as harsh as it sounds. We'll, we'll develop it, though. Ephesus, a church, this is my description of it, and I'll make the case, a church slipping into Phariseeism. And this picture, which is just a drawing, um, you remember Acts chapter 19? Remember when that guy Demetrius, the silversmith, caused a riot? Because Paul was claiming that God's made by hands, and this is how he got his livelihood. He was a silversmith. He, he made little trinkets. Remember that in Acts chapter 19? He, he caused a riot there in Acts chapter 19 because he said, this guy Paul, he's claiming that God's made by hands, which is me, Demetrius, are no gods at all. And they went into the theater and they dragged some of Paul's companions. Remember that? This drawing is pretty accurate and, and supposedly based on the geography and some of the archaeology that's been uncovered. You can kind of see in the background there, it's a seaport. And this is where they unloaded cargo and, and ships and things of that nature and worked on ships. And then this is what they think the amphitheater looked like that people were dragged into as Demetrius caused that riot. Just a little background information, but let's read the letter now. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. You'll notice, if you take the time to read the other letters to the churches, every single letter begins with the description of Jesus. Isn't that so fitting? He's everything. He's our salvation. He's our king. He's the head of the church. And he's depicted as walking amongst the churches, the congregations. I know your works, verse 2, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you or move the lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this, I let, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, 
I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You'll notice that Ephesus has more commended about it than needed to be corrected. And you might be saying, well, Alan, if they had more to be commended than corrected, why are you calling them a church that's slipping into Phariseeism? Well, first of all, we think when we hear Pharisee, we think immediately judgmentalism, looking down on others. We, we very rarely think about positive things when we think about the Pharisees. But they weren't all bad. Jesus admitted that. In Matthew chapter 23, at the beginning part of Matthew chapter 23, he said about the Pharisees to the disciples, do and observe what they preach. Do and observe what they preach. Now, he went on to say, don't do what they do, but do and observe what they preach. So I can imagine Jesus sitting in an audience, listening to, to a Pharisee preach and ribbing Peter and being like, that's not bad stuff. We ought to do that. Hey, John, pretty good stuff here. So they preached on some things, and Jesus admitted that they were preaching the truth on those things. Later on in the chapter, in Matthew chapter 23, he commended them for their tithing. Remember how they were tithing mint and dill and cumin and garden herbs and the smallest garden herbs? And he says, you, you guys should be doing that. You ought to have been doing that. But what did he follow that up with? But you have forgotten some of the weightier matters of the law, like love, justice, and mercy. But my point is this, beloved, that when Jesus spoke about the Pharisees, not everything was bad. They were good at some things. They were teaching the truth on some things. Their tithing was good. And yet they were letting some serious stuff like love, hear the letter? Like love, go by the wayside. So here's what they were commended for. And I'm just grouping all of these phrases together. They were commended for their enduring doctrinal vigilance. Number one, you cannot bear with those who are evil. Can I ad admit something to you? In the churches of Christ, and this has happened at Monte Vista, I've witnessed it many, many times. We talk a lot about how America is going downhill. America is getting less and less godly. We are moving away from God. We are moving away from our morality that our country was based on. And all of that is true. And, and sometimes I wonder if we're just trying to get the spotlight off of us. And that would be wrong if that's what our goal was. Just get the spotlight on the world and get it off of us. I've had moments where I've thought that was a little overbearing. That churches of Christ talk about it too much, how America's sliding downhill. But here's my promise. I'm going to stop thinking like that. Because if you are bothered by the United States of America and where it's headed, Jesus says, that's commendable. See my point? If we get too used to where our country is headed, 
that would need to be corrected. But Jesus looked at Ephesus, saw how they were dealing with evil, saw how they were bothered, and he commended them for it. And then secondly, he says, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You ever wonder why Paul begins a lot of his letters by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm like, Paul, we know who you are. They knew who you are. But there was a lot of people claiming to be apostles, claiming to have that type of authority, and they tested them. This is good. Now, I know apostles aren't alive today, but what did John say in 1 John chapter 4? You ought to test what? Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. And then John kind of gives the litmus test. You know whether somebody's speaking the truth if they're listening to us, him and the apostolic team. Number three, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, there's some ambiguity around the Nicolaitans. We're not going to spend a lot of time on who they were specifically, what they taught, what they practiced. But basically, long story short, the Nicolaitans were teaching and practicing evil. And Ephesus hated this. And Jesus says, I do too. I hate that as well. So they were commended for this. Now, I want to take a few moments and, and talk about the history of Ephesus because this is more impressive than you might think. Because as you think about those who are evil and testing those who call themselves apostles and the Nicolaitans, you might have in your mind, oh, that, that's outside the church. That's outside the congregation. Actually, I'm going to show you passages that indicate that this was inside. Look at this passage. This was right before the scripture reading from Drew. So he's talking to the Ephesian elders, Paul is, and he says to the elders, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, perhaps from amongst the eldership, and men from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Beloved, isn't it so easy to talk about false doctrine when it's outside? When it's the Catholic Church, when it's denominationalism, when it's Islam, it's so easy to talk about. How easy would it be if somebody arose up within Monta Vista and started speaking twisted things? Not so easy, would it be? And here's another prediction about Ephesus. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now you might say, well, that's, that's 1 Timothy. What does that have to do with Ephesus? Guess where Timothy was a full-time preacher? And furthermore... Timothy was the preacher here in Ephesus, but guess why he got stationed there? Look at this passage. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 3. Remain at Ephesus. Now, if I had a preacher tell me, hey, you need to stay in Phoenix because false doctrine's coming, I'd be like, I'm moving to Texas. That's where they hold to the truth. I'm getting out of here. He said, stay right there. Stay in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And it wasn't just a future thing either. If, if you read later on in 
that same chapter. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's on the board, 19 and 20. Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So he made the prediction in Acts 20, savage wolves are coming in among you. He made the prediction in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He told Timothy to stay in Ephesus because of these false teachers. And you have Hymenaeus and Alexander and other people giving up the faith and, and speaking twisted things. Now look at the question at the bottom of the screen. Will Monta Vista stay doctrinally pure? If these things came from within, again I say, it is so easy to talk about false doctrine and heresy when we're talking about it being from without the congregation. But these things were happening from within. So I point out those four passages to make this point as powerfully as I possibly can. Ephesus is under attack. And it's being attacked from within. But they were holding to the truth. Now, I wish I could just extend the invitation and we would be done. But everything that I've said so far is really just introductory material for this statement. I'm going to repeat myself over the next five, six, ten minutes, whatever it is. You know, I'm like you. I, I, whenever preachers repeat themselves a lot, I, I'm like, okay, I got it. But I want you to know that my repetition is on purpose over these next five to ten minutes or so. Because, beloved, I'm telling you, and I mean this just as sure as I'm standing here. I'm still shocked by this. Knowing everything that we know about Ephesus so far that they had an amazing start. They were known for their faith in the region. They were known for their love for the saints in the region. They cannot bear with evil. They are testing false apostles. They hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus hates. Knowing all of that, they are on the brink of falling away. This is the New International Version, which is very similar to what I read from the English Standard. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Listen to this statement. You can hold to the truth, be standing for the truth, and be falling away. It still shocks me. You can be on the right side of the issues. You can be on the right side of doctrine and be losing your faith. Now do you see the, the, the parallel and why I'm comparing this church slipping into Phariseeism? You remember how the Pharisees started. We don't know a lot about it from the scripture. But if you do a study, you know, they, they were around long before Jesus was born into the world. They came around in between the Testaments, in between Malachi and Matthew, okay? That's where the Pharisees got their start. And you know how the Pharisees got their start? They got their start wanting to protect the truth. So they had their law. If you had asked the Pharisee, hey, Pharisee so-and-so, 
In between the Testaments, do you believe in God? Obviously, yes. Do you believe in the Scripture, the Old Testament? They would not have called it the Old Testament, but you know what I mean. Do you believe in the Law of Moses? Do you believe in the Psalms and the writings and the prophets? Of course they would have said yes. And they were so serious about protecting the truth of that that what they did was they took the truth and they built a fence around it with their traditions. And they got so serious about protecting the truth and building this fence around it. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that the fence was okay. But what I am saying is that they built this fence from a good place, a good heart. Because they were trying to protect the purity of their religion. They were trying to protect the purity of what they were practicing. So, and then over time, what happened was the fence became more serious than, than the actual words of God. And you see that in Matthew chapter 15 where Jesus said, listen, you, you teach for doctrine the traditions of men. So the fence became more serious than the truth, but it started from a good place. It started from a good heart. But over time, decades and even centuries go by, and they begin letting the weightier matters go, like love, justice, and mercy. And if churches of Christ aren't careful, that can happen. We're seeing it in Ephesus, aren't we? Beloved, we want to be doctrinally pure. I know you do. I know too much about you. We want to be doctrinally pure about marriage and divorce, worship issues, church organization issues, how to use the Lord's money issues. I can't believe we have to say it, but gender issues, sexual sin issues. We want to be doctrinally pure. But if we're not careful, we might, we might do the same thing where we lose our faith. Have you ever met disciples in the Lord's church where everything they do, everything they study is about the issues? It's like they go from one issue to another, studying about the marriage and divorce issues and all the, all the things that might go on, and then they go over to church organization, and they go over to the Lord's money issues, and all they're doing is just going from issue to issue to issue. It's like, do you know how to study your Bible about anything else? You've met people like this? I know you have because you've met me. And I used to be just like that. I used to be just like that. I could talk for days, weeks about the issues. I'm ready to talk about the issues. But if we're not careful, we lose sight of what is the center of it all, our loving relationship with God. Now, let me flip the coin on you just for a second. You might be a person that says, well, I don't care about doctrine. We care too much about doctrine. We need to be thinking about how to love each other and love God. But, but those doctrinal issues, sexual sin issues and divorce issues and, and all those things, worship issues, they're not that big of a deal. Really? Then why is Christ going out of his way to commend this church for it? If doctrinal issues aren't serious, if doctrinal issues aren't to be paid attention to, why is Paul going out of his way to station his buddy Timothy in Ephesus to try to keep people doctrinally pure? 
So you see what I'm saying? We got to keep our balance. We got to keep our balance. Doctrine is so important. But you can get too far over there that you lose sight of what is the center of everything, our loving relationship with God. And then you, you, you might come over here to this side of the pendulum and you start thinking, well, doctrine's not important at all. And it is. And it is. We got to keep our balance. Last statement. If you're still in uh, Revelation chapter 2, read with me near the end of this letter. Revelation chapter 2. Look again at verse 5. Because you might say, Alan, when you say, you know, a church that's doctrinally pure is about to fall away, that's a little bit strong. Is it? Listen to Jesus. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, if you don't change, I'm going to paraphrase. You can't be a church of mine. <laughs> I told you I was going to repeat myself, so I don't feel bad. Are you saying, I'm not, now I'm going to use 20th century, 21st century language. Are you saying a non-institutional church of Christ, which has got all the issues down, is falling away and can't be God's church? If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And going back to our very first point, which is the significance of seven, that the reason why there's seven letters is because it represents the fullness and the completion of, of the Lord's church at that time. Listen to what he says in verse seven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to what? Churches, plural. So, yes, this is a letter to Ephesus, but it wasn't God's intention. It wasn't Christ's intention for Ephesus not to read Sardis, not to read Thyatira, and it wasn't his intention for Monavista to not read them at all either. And I know you do. But, beloved, I'm telling you, because of the significance of seven, and my conviction that these represent the Lord's church, I don't know if we could study these report cards enough. So, whether you're on the side of letting doctrine go, not very serious, or if you're on the side of putting too much weight in that and losing sight of what is our loving relationship with God, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's put away our Bibles. And get ready to sing the song of invitation. Thank you for your good listening. You always are. I hope that this whets your appetite. Because maybe, maybe you're not in this letter. You as a disciple, you as a church, maybe you're not in this letter. Maybe you're in the other six. But I hope that this whets your appetite for the other six in your personal studies. If you're subject to the gospel call, we want you to know that today could be the day of your salvation. You can be baptized into Christ. The baptistry is ready right behind me. We'll take your confession. We'll take your admittance that you're ready to repent or that you have repented and turned away from sin and that you're ready to commit your life to Jesus. His blood will wash all your sins away in baptism. Will you come? As together we stand and sing.